Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our Equine Veterinary Technical Solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community in technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888-637-4251. So welcome to the AAP new or collaborative business models panel. Uh, this is the first of two parts. And the first, I want to introduce uh, two practitioners who sold their practices. And we'll start on that. Uh, later, we'll go to a discussion on other business model uh, that people are doing right now, uh, advantages for equine practitioners. So first, I can introduce from in the UK, in Bristol, uh, Dr. Ian Cam. Ian, welcome. Hi, welcome. It's nice to be here. And then also like to introduce a longtime colleague and friend, not an equine vet, but a companion animal veterinarian, but his experiences as a companion animal, I think are going to be really relevant to our discussion. Uh, he sort of, you know, is living now, or he has been living the last six years, what many uh, practitioners, equine practitioners who sold their practice now are going through. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Sean Walter. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ian. Nice to see you guys. Hi, John. So, Ian, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your practice and the process of how you sold your practice a number of years ago. I guess I, where I started was on my own with an x-ray processor in the garden shed next to the lawnmower and what have you. Where we ended up just before we sold it was 100% equine practice with a referral hospital, uh, five satellite ambulatory clinics, which included a stud and reproduction center. And they all had smaller sort of inpatient uh, examination facilities. We were 35 vets, all equine vets, seven of them specialists in surgery, medicine, imaging, and uh, dental work. We had six qualified nurses, 15 technicians. We were three interns. And it was a staff of about 100 in, in total. And that was the practice we were. And we were trying to develop a hub and spoke model. And we were about to set out on that venture on our own when we crossed with um, the corporates. Yeah. And, and so what year did you sell? Uh, 2017. Okay. And you sold 100% of the business with the corporates? Yes. Yeah. In in December 2016, we had a director's partners meet, meeting and we had financial advisors and we'd organized our capital to decide to go out and buy practices. And that was going to be a big part of my role to be looking at what practices in the area would uh, might sell to us there 
And it was through one of our surgeons visiting another practice who came back and said, I've just spoken to this gentleman from a corporate and we ought to consider talking to them. And that's moved on. So that was December. And by the September, we'd sold. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to come back and, and with both of you and ask, you know, what led to that decision. So Sean, tell us your story. Uh, so I was uh, an associate surgeon and practicing in 2001 and um, around 2004, spring of 2004, I was given an opportunity to buy in uh, to my clinic as an associate. But at the same time, there was a, a smaller group that was owned by veterinarians um, that was looking to do kind of a smaller consolidation model that was owned or exclusively by veterinarians. And so my opportunity to come into ownership in the clinic that I was part of presented itself at the same time that this group was coming in to also purchase a position in that clinic. Uh, so I, I became a minority owner within the clinic that I was part of and uh, stayed on there as the group began to grow. And after three years, uh, I had grown my clinic to a level that was quite attractive to to our group and we transitioned or moved my ownership from a minority position in in my clinic solely into a minority position in the larger group. From there we, we started to expand and uh, got into ownership of uh, six clinics at the same time with a similar model where there was a junior associate that was becoming a partner. Uh, for the first time in their respective clinics. And then they would also have an opportunity after three years if things were going well with that clinic to move into a minority owner of, of the bigger pot. So yeah, it was, that, that was kind of how we progressed. We started to run into some troubles with acquisitions when uh, the prices of the clinics were starting to go up. And uh, it, it seemed to coincide at the same time with the entry into uh, the marketplace by by some consolidators and and uh, some corporations, but we ended up uh, selling at around well ten years later. So 2014 was ultimately in the fall of 2014 was ultimately when we ended up selling the corporate. Okay, so b- both of you have have it's been a while, you know, like four to uh, seven years since you sold. So Ian, back to you. So what was the thinking? I mean, uh, as you were saying. You thought you were going to be your group is going to be the consolidators in your area, a veterinary owned group, and then it seems like a fortuitous visit from your one of your surgeons is came back with the news. So why did your group of partners change their mind and decide to sell to a corporation? Our big thing was about um, wanting to collaborate with others to share expertise and within the local area. Our surgeons were going out; we were trying to build uh, re- referrals. The corporates were very small in the equine field at that stage, and our belief was that we could help the corporates in developing the equine side of the practice, and they they had the uh, finances. The same as Sean said, we, we didn't see why would someone sell for the price we were offering when a corporate would come in at a significantly higher price than we would have considered paying i mean that that was the the biggest reason it was certainly earlier than we had anticipated we had thought if we build up our 
hub and spoke model. And in a few years' time, we'll be much more um, attractive to a corporate. And then in those early discussions was actually maybe we could help them. We have the equine practice expertise. And because what they have developed is essentially what we were doing already. We were, we were bigger on the equine side than the corporate that purchased us. Well, Sean, I'll go to you. You sold, you were a young veterinarian at the time, youngish, and still had several yeah. years ahead of you, potentially. What was it like? I mean, did, you know, you were a junior partner. Did you want to sell at that time? My situation was fairly unique. I had run into some health problems at the time and, and wasn't very certain at all about where I was going to be in a couple of years with respect to my career and um, my ownership opportunities. So from a personal point of view, I had a lot that I had to think through. And ownership long term was very much kind of up for debate as to whether or not I could continue. The other thing that we had in our group was, since we were owned by veterinarians, there were eight of us that were part of the ownership group. And we spanned over uh, two decades between the eight of us. Uh, so succession planning was something that we had thought about. And the old model of new associates coming in and buying out the old older owners that were looking to retire was still in the forefront of our minds when we were thinking about the, the eventual future of the corporation. But you know, as things go, when you throw in a corporation that's looking to offer quite a bit more than what an associate could offer you for your shares, if you're a corporation, uh, that creates quite a bit of discussion. And at the end, it can create a lot of tension between uh, partners. So uh, the exiting partners were really, really keen or, or the older partners were really, really keen that not all of them, mind you, and I have to be fair to everybody, but there was a, there was a strong keenness for looking at at what the corporates were offering and 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 timing that with uh succession planning and lifestyle Ian, with your group did all of the partners want to sell or was it how did you decide of the group because you had several partners to sell at the end of it our discussions everyone did we wouldn't have done it if everyone didn't agree the the younger the newer People coming in, we made everyone equal so that everyone got equal benefit out of it. And so some would have uh, had a very good return on their investments very quickly there because that, we we had tried to keep everyone equal, nine of us all equal there in helping the decision. No, it, it wasn't easy, I would say. And, and one or two afterwards still said, well, I never really wanted to. Having said that, they all agreed to it and and could see the benefits uh, there and some of the reasons were for looking after your individual staff still wanting to be able to look after them and care for them in the same way that you always had done yeah and, and i think sometimes all the stories from the small animal side of uh, practices that had been bought out it, it wasn't all roses for them uh, there and so there was some nervousness about that i can add to that a little bit too like i i feel that eventually with our group everybody was on the same page but a lot of that was because we were such a closely knit group of partners and and had become 
very, very good friends that those who had aspirations to stay in ownership and wanted to kind of continue down that path essentially decided that their friendship with their, their partners and, and colleagues was more important than trying to put up a battle to, to maintain ownership of the group and to also deny a friend, you know, the benefits of having this really, really nice nest egg uh, for their eventual retirement that might slip out of their hand. So you sold your practices, Ian, maybe you can share what the reality was versus what you thought it was going to be. And I'll ask you, Sean, afterwards. I guess um, the biggest thing when you thought that nothing was going to change because that's what you were told, except some minor changes. Uh, that's absolutely wrong because lots is going to change there. I, I think at the end stage where we've got to for most of the staff, it, it has been good. I think the people where it uh, really hurt was the aspiring um, vets, the senior assistants who were looking to go into partnership, directorship, and you had suddenly taken that away from them. And I think overall, that was the, the hardest thing because they were some really good, hardworking people. And I, I guess we probably didn't uh, appreciate that quite as quite as much. Having been part of uh, practices where we'd bought or merged others, we, we'd been used to nurses saying, well, we always used to do it this way and now we're doing it another way. And you'd blamed whoever you joined. And the fact you joined a corporate, well, they got blamed rather than we got blamed for it. But I I think uh, that, that that would be the group I I think we did the, the worst for. So when you said that things weren't supposed to change or you were told that maybe minor things, but you said a lot would change. You know, big picture, I don't have to share too many personal things, but what were some of the areas that you were surprised changed? I, I think we had our own finance department, marketing department, HR department, and those changed. We were used to all of those systems being in-house straight away and moving that away to headquarters was was difficult. Changing processes was difficult. And, and the truth is that the corporate that purchases was very keen to get on and buy someone else, get their market share, and you, and you, you got bought and left a bit to fend for yourself with the changes that were imposed, I would say. Okay. So, Sean, I'll ask you the same question in terms of uh, what was the reality versus what you were expecting? I guess my expectations kind of starting off were quite optimistic. I felt like, you know, there might be some some really good opportunities for me personally if I, um, you know, could get through some of the personal health hurdles that I had. Being part of a larger corporation, really kind of working with a bigger group to try and help a lot of veterinarians kind of through their careers. And so I, I had visions of, of mentoring and, and being able to travel around a little bit to different clinics to be able to help different veterinarians and technicians uh, kind of move their skill set forward. Uh, the reality is I, I kind of agree with Ian. They kind of leave things alone for about a year until they get a year in their books. Uh, and then they really seem to kind of tighten down. And the speed of decision making um, slows down tremendously. As an owner, I could give a decision within a few minutes when it comes to some major things, such as some fairly costly capital expenses. It can take months. 
to get things approved. Uh, and if something like that is really, really important to an associate that's trying to develop a skill set and wants to move over into a niche area or an area of special interest, that, that can be delayed significantly, if at all approved. Mm-hmm. I agree 100% with Ian, too. The opportunities to some of those younger veterinarians that had aspirations to kind of follow the path of ownership that I was lucky enough to have in front of me just evaporate in front of them. And uh, that, that's a huge challenge and a huge hit to, to somebody's personal plans and fulfillment when it all of a sudden kind of goes poof right in front of you. In terms, and, I, and I don't know, honestly, if they realize that when, when the purchase goes through, but it won't take very long for them to kind of recognize that if they had ownership aspirations, they're not going to be sticking around at, at that clinic to get those ownership aspirations. Now, I do understand that some corporates are, are trying to change that, but I think it's, it's a very different than what it would be if you were in ownership with other veterinarians having common goals, being able to make the decisions from top to bottom on business decisions and medical decisions without too much of a holdup. So I, I saw this optimism of, of opportunities in front of me with a larger corporation, and I quickly kind of realized that there aren't a lot of opportunities for me. Even when my health improved, I saw a glass ceiling there that uh, I wasn't going to be able to break through. And the unfortunate side of it is that that glass ceiling, the people above it were not veterinarians. And they were all people from other industries that had very little experience in veterinary medicine. And that was that was quite frustrating. One question, we, had, we didn't talk before, but just as we're talking, maybe think about it, Sean. Did anybody leave your, your practice or the other group of practices between veterinarians and support staff? Well, so I was quite proud of my clinic. I, I stayed on at my clinic as a medical director for upwards of three and a half, almost four years. And the group that was there with me stayed on board. Uh, some of them had gone on maternity leave and had come back. Some of them had stuck around and tried to evolve their careers into different areas. I would say by and large, when, when I was there, things stayed relatively steady. But I think that's a testament to the way that I kind of pushed back on, on corporate as a medical director. And since I've left, I think the person who has filled my shoes as medical director has tried to do the same. And sticking up for her beliefs from a medical point of view, pushing back on corporate in terms of making sure that decisions are based on science and not based on finances. It carries a lot of risk because you're creating quite a bit of strife with your your superiors, but you're sticking to uh, your beliefs and what you feel is going to resonate the most with clients. And uh, I, I respect that tremendously, but I also recognize that it's, it's, a, it's a tricky situation because you don't know personally how that's going to affect your career. I think with some of the other clinics, depending on the leadership on site, things may have deteriorated for them. And some of the other clinics, again, with the strong leadership and, and strong support of, of the clinic staff, I think they stayed kind of on par and on target with, with keeping people around. But it's really, it's very dependent on the people you have in the clinic. And to be honest with you, it's very dependent on 
a regional manager that corporate puts in place for you to discuss things with or, you know, your relationship with the next level up or even maybe two levels up within the corporate system. Um, and if you are able to do a good job with, with working with those particular people, then your clinic has a good chance of being able to kind of fulfill the hopes and dreams of your staff. But as soon as you lose that ability, I think people start to get dismayed a little bit and are, are starting to feel like the grass is greener in other situations than on, on the other side. How about your situation, Ian? Did uh, your, your team stay intact? Yes, uh, bro- broadly, I, they, they did on the, the, the veterinary and nursing side. And I, I'd, I'd have to say we were never restricted in clinical freedom or drugs that we wanted to use. I don't think we got turned down on equipment purchases you know that was good and and maybe even better than we would have been in uh, on our own because of the i guess the financial backing was there so from that point of view i think it is it has been good but for the the vet vets now i i think it's a good place to work really for them i i'm not feeling oh my goodness what have we done for all these hundred people I think it is okay. Good. Well, yeah, it's nice to get both sides. There are different groups and they all have their different approaches. So I guess that's, you know, if you are on the, on the going to sell, reaching out to other vet practices that have been sold is probably a real part of your due diligence to see what the after effects are going to be like. Yeah, not, not only checking out those testimonials for sure from other clinics, but really working hard with, with searching yourself for multiple corporates or consolidators or even private private veterinarians that might be willing to pay more than traditionally a veterinarian would pay. I think I think that's a really good part of your due diligence because you know you might end up finding that there's there's more to this that is going to be important to you than just the final dollar figure. And I think people really do have to consider what kind of support is going to be available to their staff after the fact. So last question, and Ian, we'll start with you. So we're talking a lot about new kind of business models. Your group was looking at that hub and spoke model before. I mean, you, you, you're a, let's call you, let's be respectfully a senior veterinarian and you've, you've seen a lot. You've done a lot. You've been around a lot. When you look at the, where the world is now, um, we're coming out of COVID. What opportunities are there for veterinary practices to, you know, forge another path beyond just, you know, sole ownership. You know, maybe they don't want to sell the corporate. Any ideas on how groups can practice differently? I think uh, being on your own it isn't isn't the way forward. I, I like the hub and spoke collaborating, working with others model, and I would still encourage that. I, I do wonder where the, the veterinary profession is going. Now, I mean, within is it is it a job? Is it a vacation? There, the and the work life balance side of things, and the work life balance comes to the four R. Vets now are on a four day week, and out of hours, half the time is covered by an out of hours service. And and we have a lot of part time staff, and that and that's part partly with the more uh, the the demographics more female than male but equally there are like myself working part-time now and so there's a shortage of vets who who want a better work-life balance and i i see it as being quite difficult going forward 
the veterinary profession as a whole. I think that what I'm doing now, having totally given up the management side and going back to clinical work, I think, well, that's a nice opportunity, to be honest. It's, uh, and, and maybe that the, the senior vets become managers, and so you lose your expertise. Right. Uh, and maybe that's not a good thing. Yeah. And Sean, what can us equine practitioners learn from this companion animal market in terms of what opportunities do you see? Uh, I mean, we're all veterinarians, and I think if you're doing any companion animal, we'll figure it out some ways along the ways of equine. Well, in fact, I flip that around a little bit on you and say, what can some all companion animal veterinarians learn from the equine industry? I'm actually quite, quite again, optimistic about the opportunities that equine practitioners have ahead of them, more so than, than companion animal, because they, at least in, in North America so far, there hasn't been a lot of corporate hands that have gotten into equine hospitals, at least in Canada, as of yet. So I think there are some opportunities to kind of review the ownership model on the equine side. And, and really, I encourage those practitioners to think along a collaborative path one that uh, that can do exactly what Ian's talking about, which is bringing like-minded veterinarians together. I'm working with you, Mike, on something where collaboration is is huge, and and uh, it, it creates a lot of excitement and joy around what you're trying to do, and and provides an opportunity for veterinarians to really get into that driver's seat and really kind of control uh, where you want this industry to go. And and part of that work that we're doing, we talked to a couple of younger veterinarians and I'm really encouraged by the younger veterinarians and their wantingness and willingness to become owners. What I'm discouraged about in, in companion animal is that existing multi-vet clinics aren't necessarily going to be there for them to purchase into or to buy into. So so they may have to be looking at startups and, and doing that heavy work of starting from scratch and building up something while at the same time they're looking to buy their first house or looking to start a family and looking to have kids. So that kind of collaborative approach with job sharing, those are things that I'd like to see veterinarians really kind of take hold of and, and work together to, to see models kind of expand out of those ideas, because I think that's where the future lies. Gentlemen, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, you're, you're both busy, and uh, I'm sure people who will be watching this will gain a lot of insight. So thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Thank Thanks, you. Bye. Welcome to the AP Business Management Session panel on new business models in equine practice. And so in this segment, we have four guests, and we'll uh, start geographically in North America, start on the West Coast and move our way east and have some introductions and have everybody explain a little bit about their practice. So let's start on the West Coast and Dr. Wendy Krebs. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. Appreciate it. And heading a little bit further east, we down to deep in the heart of Texas, really deep in the heart of Texas is Dr. Ben Buchanan. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. And going further on up, to the cold, cold part of Wisconsin, Dr. Scott Spaulding. Welcome, Scott. Uh, thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be part of this. And then finally, uh, over to New York State, Dr. Miranda Goslin. Welcome, Miranda. Thank you, Mike. So what we're talking about is new business models in equine practice. And the four of you have interesting experiences in terms of trying something new. And Wendy, we'll get to you soon is because 
as I understand it, you were approached to sell your practice and you decided not to. And so in, in light of the presentation that I had earlier, I'm really looking forward to your insights. But before we jump into it, let's just sort of have a, again, go through uh, West to East. Just tell us a little bit about your practice and what you do there. So Wendy, we'll start with you. Hello. Good morning. I'm the I'm managing partner at Bendyquine Medical Center. We are a seven doctor practice. We have a hospital facility. Um, we're about 90% equine and also have a small, small animal division as well with uh, two interns. Right. And Ben, tell us about yourself and your practice practices. So I'm uh, the managing partner of the referral hospital in Navasota. Uh, there's seven veterinarians here, a couple specialists. We have an outpatient center in Northern Houston. Um, we're allied with several other hospitals in Texas. And so this kind of a joint venture equity ownership with another referral hospital by Austin, a referral hospital up by Fort Worth, and then a big breeding center up by Fort Worth. And so it's kind of a, a mixture. It will get into kind of how the equity works and the ownership and why we did it the way we did it. Yeah, looking forward to that discussion. And, and Scott, tell us about yourself. Practiced for 25 years as an equine veterinarian in southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois was uh, CEO of Badger Veterinary Hospital, which is a three-location mixed animal practice. Started the Mavana concept back in 2015, and uh, we ended up with a total of about 40, 40 practices in Mavana. And then Mavana was subsequently sold approximately a year ago to another aggregator. Finally, Miranda, tell us about uh, your practice. I am the managing partner of a exclusively equine, predominantly ambulatory practice in Millbrook, New York. We are part of a management group called Cavalcade Management. There are three practices in that group. And uh, the goal of the group is to establish efficiencies and work cooperatively in the market. So that's basically our... Okay, great. Well, I look forward to hearing about all the experiences, but uh, Wendy, we'll start with you because again, in terms of the timing of this, we're recording this ahead of the convention. We have had my presentation on the challenges of, of selling practices. We'll have been hearing from two other vets that have sold their practices and their stories. But Wendy, as I understand it, you were approached by one of the aggregators to sell your practice. And so perhaps you can sort of tell us your story of, of that process and what led to the decision that your group of owners made on that? Yeah, I would be happy to. So in 2018, I had been a 50-50 partner with my partner at the time for about 10 years. Um, he's about 20 years older than I am. And uh, we were approached and he actually, a practice in the area was purchased by NVA, a small animal practice that was essentially somebody we knew. And so my partner was interested, um, heard that it was a good payout and uh, approached NVA and they proceeded to make us an offer to buy out his 50% plus 1% of my shares. So I would have become a 49% minority owner at that point. So it was a difficult situation because he very much did want to do the sale. He was ready to retire. It, it made sense for him in a lot of ways. But I had to uh, sort of look at my options at that point, being in my early 40s, not quite ready to retire. And the payoff at that point, you know, would not have been enough for me to retire that early. And in addition, I would have been forced to stay, you know, as an associate there for several more years as part of the deal. 
it was a challenging situation, but uh, in retrospect, it, it certainly wasn't the right decision for me at the time. And I've been able to, now I'm a 84% owner of the practice. We asked an associate and our practice manager actually to become owners and to buy out Dr. Schmaltzer's shares. So it's been a good decision. So interesting that you have your practice manager as part of the owner. So what led to that decision and how is that working out? She truly deserved it. She had been with the practice really since the inception. She's integral. She's been dedicated to the practice for a long time. Um, and it's allowed in the state of Oregon for non-Virginarians to have minority ownership. And um, absolutely, um, that was the right decision. She's been fabulous as an owner. Okay. And so since she bought in, has her, uh, I know it's like the quote unquote ownership, obviously she's an owner, but in terms of, did you find any change in terms of her commitment to the business or? her value to the business? She's always been committed to the practice, certainly. And that's why we invited her into ownership. But I think it has given you know me a little bit more certainty that she's with the practice for the long term. It makes it a little bit harder for her to leave. And she's literally more invested in the practice. So. Interesting. Yeah. So Ben, let, let's talk about your situation because I, I know you've got a few things going on. So why don't you walk us through what your situation is like with your new business models? Yeah, so there's a lot of different thoughts to that, but the way that it's structured currently is we created internally a central company that owns half of the shares of every business, right? So you call it the holdings company or the investment company, but it functions similar to a corporate would with a joint venture, but it's not owned by private equity or by corporate. It's owned by partners from all of the different companies. So that single entity owns half of the Navasota Hospital. It owns half of the Salado Hospital. It owns half of the Stephenville Hospital. It owns a part of the breeding center because we have a, a non-veterinary partner there. And then the nine of us own that company. And so locally, there are shares that are owned by the veterinarians that practice in the local companies. And that has allowed for some autonomy locally. Um, it's allowed for some collaboration and scale without having to truly function as a, a really large hospital, but it also has some challenges in, in management because of the different locations and trying to operate as a single brand with everybody having autonomy operating as a single brand becomes challenging. And so consistency is a, is a challenge, you know, frequently. So are all the practices identified when you talk about a common brand, are all of them identified as being part of this joint venture? So everybody's branded as Brazos Valley Equine Hospital currently. So that it's one brand, one logo, one medical record. So there's a single central database with all of the medical records, which is super attractive because you, know, you can look at, uh, last time I looked, it was close to 40,000 appointments last year. That's a lot of data that if you wanted to mine, that you could look for stuff on. And so it's a single database that we're searching. And then the horses in Texas change hands. They go from trainer to trainer. And as they move around, the record is you don't have to, to dig up old records because we're all sharing the database. Right. I want to get back to you because I want to ask all of you in terms of what, you know, what led you to this, the formation of this. But Scott, perhaps you can just tell us what the structure of Mavana was prior to its sale. So Mavana, the, the original discussions surrounding Mavana started in the summer of 2015. There was eight practices that um, started having the discussion initially. Within a very short period of time, we agreed to merge our practices together. 
of the original eight practices prior to closing, two of them backed out, so six remain. As we began, um, most of us were, most of the founding practices are fairly well connected in the veterinary industry. As we started sharing our story, we were overwhelmed with other practices that wanted to join us. There was dozens of other practices that reached out to us. We elected to delay our closing uh, six months and we added another 15 practices. So on January 1st, 2017, Mavana closed its initial merger with 21 practices and I believe 14 different states, each of the practices. So essentially each partner, uh, we did valuations on each practice by using the same valuation method. The practices, essentially all the shareholders traded in their shares for their local practice for shares in Mavana at the corporate level. With the initial founding group, they had the opportunity to, to um, also put cash into the deal to help fund Mavana. So we had a significant amount of cash that was invested at that time. Each practice um, operated essentially as it always had in the past under the same name and the same brand. Moving forward, we added more practices. We did a few more mergers of, of practices that came in. Then we started doing acquisitions and kind of hybrid, some hybrid transactions that were part, part acquisition, part merger. We ended up close to 40 practices. We had 90 shareholders in Mavana. Well, we can leave the rest of it for more discussion, but that, that was kind of the basis of the Mavana business model. So just to understand the, the structure of it. So when you say merged, I mean, you're all different states. So did you have like, well, like what Ben was talking about, like a management company that sort of oversaw everything? Because I would imagine it'd be really difficult if you had to merge with a, a practice in a state where, you know, you need to be a veterinarian if everybody had to be licensed in multiple states. So how did you get around that? Mavana essentially served as a management company um, for all of the practices. Uh, however, there was a, you know, most of the practices had a significant infrastructure already built out. And for the most part, we left that in place at the local practice level. There were some things that were kind of no-brainers for us to do to, to, to achieve some scale, to bring some, some things to the corporate level. And it was, you know, purchasing insurance, purchasing drugs and supplies. I think one of our heaviest lifts and one of our biggest accomplishments was getting national health care in place for all the practices across the different states. Another heavy lift that was really challenging was just the, the bookkeeping and the accounting and getting that under one, under one software. That was a, certainly a much more sophisticated accounting software platform than most practices would use. So those are the things that, that we were doing, Mike, you know, kind of to, to bring it together. I think that you know, one of the challenges that we never expected the Mavana to grow as big as it did. We never expected it to grow as rapidly as it did. And, um, you know, we got to the point where we needed to have some outside help. We needed some deeper pockets. We needed more expertise. Thanks. And so Miranda, yeah, tell us about Cavalcade and what that structure is all about. In the beginning, it came out of, you know, conversations over coffee. I'm um, just three people sitting together talking about the challenges of equine practice and managing any kind of veterinary practice. And then we started talking about how much easier it could be if we could help each other. And um, it grew into conversations that were initially a little bit more aggressive. I mean, we talked about, we really initially were focused on trying to merge. Um, and I think that as we got further along in the process, we realized that not every practice had a core identity that was the same as the other two. And I think that 
that was something that was really important to us. There were aspects of like uh, retirement contributions that that was a big deal to Millbrook Equine. And it it wasn't it was a big deal to the other practices, but it wasn't as high of a priority. And I think a lot of that stems from where the owners were in their in the pathway of their career. So I think that we kind of got around to this concept of, and I refer to it as merger light, which was the establishment of the management company with the idea that we would pool resources and we had, we would attempt to find ways to find efficiencies, right? We would look for efficiencies in, like you were talking about healthcare, health insurance. We'd look for efficiencies in buying equipment and in uh, purchasing just through our distributors. And I think we also, we looked for efficiencies in, in personnel utilization, right? So we, two of the practice really overlap. And so there were many ways where we could collaborate and utilize each other's personnel. And then that way we didn't have to recreate the wheel. So if I have a person that can do, um, can process the payroll and another practice is missing somebody or they're out on maternity we can kind of mix and match and find ways to help each other. It also became very useful for on-call, for veterinarians on-call. Um, again, we like overlap. So if we had a veterinarian that was out on maternity, we could help each other or we could just step up and, and provide backup coverage during the time when one of the practices is transitioning in their interns. So there were a lot of ways that we could work together I think that our initial goals were to obviously try to build revenue. I think that we're still looking for opportunities to do that as Cavalcade. The focus has been so much on personnel. Um, I forgot to mention, actually, we, we collaborate a lot with uh, events and educational opportunities for veterinary students, for clients, and referring veterinarians. So that's a really good thing, too. We can work together and build these amazing programs. So I think that, you know, it would be great if we could find other ways to bring in additional revenue for Cavalcade. But as of right now, it, it serves the purpose, which is we still have autonomy and we have significant ways to reduce our expenses and the collaboration is, is really good. So I feel like overall, that's where we are. Right. So with that management company, you're able to foster that collaboration while still being independently owned. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I I guess that's a very good point, right? I think in the inception, we were looking to build something that could capture those benefits that maybe you would get from a corporate and aggregate type experience. But then we would just be us. We'd be us working together, veterinarians working together, and we would continue to be our own shareholders. Right. Does Cavalcade have their own employees, Miranda? No, we don't. And that was one of the things that was really hard initially. We were talking about the the whole retirement program. If we had any employees in Cavalcade, each practice was going to have to revamp their um, retirement program. And that wasn't something that we were willing to do. So, I mean, I guess if you were going to say, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? I would say that was probably, that was it. I mean, when we got to that point, then we were like, put on the brakes. We can't continue to go forward in the direction of merging. What we do is we will hire people with the intention of sharing them 
and they will be an employee of one of the three practices. And then we will invoice each other for utilization. So they are very much intended to be a shared employee, but they're not an employee per se of Cavalcade. So I want to go back to the time period. Wendy mentioned 2018, Scott's 2015. And Wendy, we'll start with you in terms of you mentioned that, you know, they were going to buy out 49% of, of your shares, leaving you. I don't want to get personal. I don't need to need the details. But when people hear about selling to an aggregator or a corporate group, they're thinking, wow, the money is just going to roll in and I'm set. And so I just would like to understand your mindset or, or what kind of analysis you did, I guess, to say, like, is this enough? You know, because there's there's money, but then there's also, I don't know if you had questions about control and about direction for the practice. So maybe we want to go back to 2018 and just what was going on through your mind when you were approached by a corporate group to buy out your shares. Sure. So, yes, I would certainly have had to give up um, any control, you know, at maximum being a 49% owner at that point. Um, And I think I mentioned as well, they would have required me to stay on for three to five years. The multiple that they were offering at that point um, was not quite as high as what, you know, we hear about these days. It was uh, more in the eight range, which was still, you know, more than a private sale. And so it would have been to the advantage of my partner, certainly to accept their offer. But again, looking at what the ultimate payout was to me at my stage of the career, it really wasn't enough for me to walk away after those three to five years. The other consideration I had is that we were on a pretty steep growth trajectory at that point, and we have continued to do so. And my partner at that time was slowing down in his career and not a, you know, particularly. Uh, maybe not as productive as um, another associate may have been that we could have added. And so I saw potential for, you know, some definite financial growth at that point that was unrealized. And, you know, I would have essentially been giving that to NVA had I sold to them at that point. And I'm happy to say that despite the challenges of uh, pandemic and everything else being pretty stressful in those first couple of years, um, we have uh, really done well with our, our gross and profitability. And looking back, it was a thousand percent the correct decision not to sell. And your partner, did he, like you did an internal sale? Like he sold his shares to the associate? Yes. He sold some of his shares to me and then some to the associate and the practice manager. Did the same value that MVA was offering or how did y'all value make that work? Yeah, that's a great question. No, we had an operating agreement that stipulated the terms of sale that we had written many years before. So fortunately had that in place. And the stipulation was that it would be the average of what two different practice valuators um, agreed it was worth. So it was not the same payout that he would have gotten from NBA, which was unfortunate for him and, and hard you know, for me, but it was the right business decision and went off of our operating agreement. Because yeah, that is one of the challenges I know talking to colleagues in the EU because they're a bit further ahead of us in terms of how aggressive the corporate groups have been in buying practices. And that has been the one sticking point. I know one practice in particular, while the owner was uh, one of the minority owner was about your age range, uh, but his partners, two other partners were in their late 50s. And the money that was offered by corporate was too much for them to give up. And he was in a position like you are, he couldn't say no because majority ruled. 
And so now he's spending the rest of his professional career working for somebody else and not loving it. Yeah, that would be hard. So Wendy, when you guys were thinking through everything, was there a number? Because you and I are in a similar place in life, right? You know, like I don't see myself being right next to retirement, you know, a couple of, but, but was there a number that when you were thinking through everything that you would have said, you know, I can't walk away from that number? That's a great question. I guess I don't, I don't feel professionally ready to retire. I, I thought at the time, like, you know, should I choose to live very efficiently? It was a number I suppose I could have lived off of uh, in Costa Rica or something like that. Um, <laughs> but I didn't uh, want that sort of financial constraint. It wasn't enough to live comfortably, you know, for another 40 years or what have you. So I suppose there there would have been a number if I had decided I could walk away from being an equine vet, but I'm geographically centered here. I have no desire to leave and start a new practice somewhere else. And it just didn't suit my life needs from either perspective. Interesting. So Ben, let's shift over to you. So when did you do this, this equity swap or the development of the joint venture? And what was, you know, what were the challenges that you were hoping and that this would find a solution for? I think you had to give a lot of the credit, Mike, to Charlie, to my brother. He and I were the first two partners. And most of the way that this was built was his brainchild. But the idea was similar to kind of the corporate is that you've got a joint venture, um, but the local practices have an incentive to work hard for the local practice. And so I could bring on a partner in Navasota, vet him for a few years, make sure that everybody's happy with him. And then they have the opportunity to buy into the bigger group that owns at that time, you know, four practices. The vision is that that central group ultimately would own multiple practices or multiple businesses aligned in veterinary medicine. So the central group could own the management company, could own a compounding pharmacy, um, the different aspects that we want to have in practice and kind of integrate all those into a single business. You know, but some of that then creates a regional competition and it's not a single business anymore. It's a corporate in you know, corporate gets blamed for things that aren't going very well locally. And, and it has a lot of challenges to do it that way. I, I think if I was to redo it, I would try to keep it all a single, one single business that everybody's working for instead of broken up into a bunch of little businesses that are working under a single umbrella. And you got to same someone on a Wednesday, you don't need to get too personal and too much uh, soul bearing. But when you're talking about how some of the, the the local practices feel, I guess their hands are tied by the bigger practice. Do you, are there some examples? Because I would think the model that you described as like, this is an ideal model. You got local control, but yet you have this corporate support. And so I'm, I'm surprised to hear that there have been some challenges on the local level. Um, like if you take marketing, for example, like we tried to, because we're a single brand, And maybe if it wasn't a single brand, it would work better. But like the marketing aspect, to have a single person in charge of marketing that is remote is very difficult locally. So if I want, yeah, see some changes on the website or we want some headshots or we want to sponsor this, it's two extra emails and a conversation. And if you don't have the right person in the management company that can handle different personalities in different locations, it, it, is set up to fail. I think the concept is really good. 
but picking your people and picking your partners is critical that it works at the beginning as well. So what led you to develop this structure though? Like what was the underlying local or, or, you know, part, you know, with your existing setup that you said, this is why we need to do this. The idea was to have that central company for the purpose of integrating other businesses. Like the idea was that we'd have a single company that could own the veterinary practices that would also own the compounding pharmacy or a, you know, production center or a software company. Like you'd have a a business that had some freedom to go get and invest in other things. And that was kind of the concept as a central management group. Probably not the right way to describe it. It's more of a, a central investment company that we own that invested in the business. And that company also invested in a management company. And then it invested in a compounding pharmacy and, you know, a variety of different aspects that we, that have gone some really well, some we tried and then killed. But the idea was to have that single investment company that could dabble and play in those other areas without affecting the veterinary practice. How well did you feel like you needed to understand those businesses? I mean, because like I think about myself as a managing partner, like I, I feel like I have a pretty strong sense of veterinary medicine. But if you ask me like how to manage or man, maybe management is too strong of a word, how to, how to, how to own a, a compounding pharmacy, I'm not going to know hardly anything. So, I mean, obviously business is business, but like how did that affect how that worked for you guys? Um, I think having some key people on the business side helped really well because people that we all trusted that could look at the business structure and we had the managing partners, we understand the P&Ls well enough. But the rules of compounding pharmacy, if we use that as an example, and making sure we're licensed in every state, um, having a COO that understood the business aspect, but also understood the business that we were trying to invest in that could could run with that and having those key people was was why the compounding pharmacy worked so well was having that right point person that understood what we were looking for and then finding the pharmacist that we have now is fantastic and so somebody else that kind of had that same entrepreneurial vision as a pharmacist that wanted to get involved as a partner in the business was really helpful so you do have non-veterinarian partners yes and I guess that to go back to Mike's original question, that's probably a, that's a big part of it as well. Like we have a, a dental business. And so he's not a veterinarian. He can't own the veterinary practice, but they're productive enough that he deserves to have some equity and ownership in the business of that we created floating teeth. And so it's a shared partnership there. And a non-veterinarian is allowed to own that business. And the non-veterinarian can own a compounding pharmacy. And so we can create a structure where the veterinary group is investing in the compounding pharmacy, but we're allowed to have non-veterinarians also as the ownership. If you had a single entity trying to do all that, it, it would make it a little more complicated, maybe less complicated in some areas, but more complicated than others. The vision was that that single group was not just for veterinary hospitals, that it would invest in veterinary businesses, um, which it has. How do you make decisions? Like, how does governance work? Somebody will bring up an idea and the board discusses it and votes on it and identifies the person to execute it. And 
it's a board vote most of the time. I guess the other thing that's unique on a concept for us is there's no majority partner. So if a local person is buying in, they're buying in equal shares. So if the local business owns 50% of the shares and I sell it and I let someone buy in, they're going to buy it equal to me. That There's not a situation where somebody owns more shares than anybody else. It's always equal. And that creates a lot of conflict. It also creates a lot of solutions. At the end of the day, it works better, but nobody has the ability to just say, well, I own all the shares and I'm making the decision. Right. Interesting. So, Scott, back in 2015, when you had the uh, idea of putting Mavana together, what were what was the the problem you were trying to solve? You know, listening to this discussion, I think um, part of it was focused on operations. The biggest goal for Mavana was to maximize shareholder value, and that was the premise from day one. I think that um, the original founding group, you know, myself, you know, looked at what was going on in the small animal segment of our profession. Um, where private equity was coming in and buying these small animal practices for relatively low multiples. You know, one of the companies was a privately traded company or a publicly traded company. They were buying these practices at very, very low multiples and turning around and selling them to Wall, on Wall Street, you know, for, for a huge arbitrage. And uh, the thought was is that we wanted to narrow that gap. So veterinarians who have spent their entire career building a practice could benefit from that arbitrage rather than it all just going to the investors in Wall Street. And I think we looked at, you know, primarily what was going on in the industry at that point in time, it was small animal practices and metropolitan areas that were being aggregated. We looked at the value of a lot of these practices, mixed animal practices in more remote areas of the country, didn't have an opportunity to participate in the, or in the corporate drive to buy practices. So I think that was really the founding premise. Plus, you know, looking at the value, so many of these practices have been established for decades. They're often in um, smaller, more remote areas. They're a big employer in town. They're, they sponsor the kids' soccer teams. They're going to be in business for decades and decades to come. And they're, they're valuable practices. They got very predictable cash flows. Typically, our successors had no interest in purchasing um, these practices. So we were looking for a way to um, an outlet to, to to monetize these practices is really what we were doing. Excellent. Would you do anything differently in hindsight? We had hoped maybe put the other six, eight, ten practices to accomplish this. Um, in hindsight, I didn't recognize the, the the nationwide demand for a platform like this. I would have partnered with private equity much sooner in the process to give us the resources to to truly build the platform. You know, not only did we need the equity, the capital, but we needed the expertise to help pull this to help pull this together, the size that it grew. So I think that would be the biggest, the biggest thing that I would do differently. A question I'm sure people in the audience will be listening to this going, if you were all merging, why did you need capital or why would you need private equity capital? Well, we started doing a lot of acquisitions of practices. A lot of the practices that we owned, people were looking for an exit. So number one, to do practice acquisition and to compete with the other people out there. I, nobody saw equine and mixed animal as a, a as an opportunity to aggregate practices until Mavana started doing it. And then when Mavana started doing it, all of a sudden there was a huge rush to come in and it greatly increased the value of the practices. And 
you know, to compete with the other aggregators, we needed to have deeper, deeper pockets than we were able to put together. The other thing that we learned is to just build out the corporate infrastructure, capital intensive. It really, it really took a lot of cash to put together a corporate team, to put, to put in place, you know, a CFO and all the platform to run all the practices. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Miranda, again, same question. What was the problem that Cavalcade was trying to solve when the three of you came together? We were looking for another option other than going in the corporate direction. We were looking for ways to find efficiencies. We were looking for ways to work together. We were looking for ways to, uh, we were just looking for creative options where we could work together for the benefit of our three practices. You know, going back to some of those first conversations that we had with the full board, I think we were looking to like change the world initially, right? I mean, isn't everybody, but uh, I still feel strongly about using Cavalcade as a platform for um, affecting change in the profession. There wasn't really one specific problem that we were trying to solve. I think we were just looking for ways to compete. Right. So let's shift a little bit. I mean, we this, the history and the background is excellent. I think people are going to get a lot of great information out of it. So it's 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 the fall of 2021. We're coming out of the pandemic, knock on wood. Um, you know, um, we're, we're wiser from our experiences. So Ben, I'm going to go to you and we'll sort of go around the world a bit here. Uh, what opportunities are out there for equine practice owners and veterinarians that now could be explored? Knowing what you know now, what, what else could people do? From an organizational standpoint or just from a revenue standpoint? I think both. Let's say you're in Wendy's position and you know you didn't go the corporate route or you're, you know, what Miranda's done with Cavalcade, like from your perspective, what could a, a, a vet practice do in an, in an area? What opportunities are out there other than selling to corporate? I mean, that's the obvious. Expanding some services, Mike, I think is, I'm going to jump on the rehab bandwagon. And I think that there is enough understanding and demand from clients now to justify the capital investment. And those guys that have got into it and paid it off where you can share overhead expenses in the vet practice, it, that to me makes a lot of sense. So you're saying like with other vet practices in an area, have a central rehab place? Or put one in your hospital, like if it's big enough, because now I don't have to fund the whole rehab facility with just the horses in the rehab facility. Like I can self-refer, but I also can give them a, a half a stall cleaner. Like I don't have to hire a full person to, to maintain and run the facility because I can share all that. And so there's a lot of cash and savings and things available currently for financing expansions and that I would, I'd like to look at expanding some services. For me, rehab is, a, is one. Diagnostic imaging is another. There's some things that are coming down in price now that if you've got the volume, the diagnostic imaging piece. Well, how about organizational? I mean, you've, you've got your group. It seems to... It, generally working well. It's got some challenges, but you said there's been a lot of successes. Are there other opportunities that you can see in that kind of collaboration between practices? Minnesota um, has identified a veterinarian locally who was productive, practiced similarly, similar ethics, similar cases, shared a lot of clients and merged him into our hospital. And so it was a straight equity valued his practice 
ours on the same model and merged him into the hospital, set up a plan to equalize the shares. That I think is an opportunity for a lot of hospitals currently because the solo ambulatory people are just coming out of the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of stress. They see the risk of being on their own. They see the value of being in a collaborative group. And I think there's opportunities to expand, not organically, but by merging with other smaller practices in your area and one or two of the ambulatory guys that are you know interested. I think that's a huge opportunity right now for us. Excellent. How about yourself, Wendy? That same question. I mean, you know, listen to what um, Ben Miranda and Scott have been saying in your own experiences, and you've got a great growing business. What opportunities do you see are out there for other practices, either for revenue or just in, in organizational structures? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I guess one thing I'm particularly passionate about um, is the sustainability of equine practice right now and looking at ways that we can do better with the emergency care model. You know, we all know there are very few people coming into equine and uh, those that do come into equine rapidly, you know, are um, suffering some attrition. And a lot of that is due to the emergency schedules. And so I think putting together um, collaborations with other practices or forming, you know, true emergency equine clinic scenarios, I think is a, is a opportunity for the future and to, um, something that we would like to do is hire true emergency clinicians so that we're not working sort of day and then a night shift as well and looking at ways to potentially expand that regionally potentially. Okay. How about yourself, Scott? I think I see two, two areas um, and I think they've both been touched on here. I think that the fragmentation of our industry is still something that continues to plague us and ways to come together you know, Cavalcade sounds like, you know, a really, a really solid platform to try to leverage some of those resources across multiple practices. You know, I think that's, that's what we've seen is that there's so many small practices, you know, oftentimes in relatively close, close proximity to one another that have all the same capital expenditures. They're all buying digital x-ray, they're all building clinic facilities, you know, or whatever. And if you could minimize that, um, and spread that across more veterinarians, I think there's a huge upside there. And then all the other, you know, leveraging all the other um, resources that our practices have, you know, be it accounting or, or bookkeeping or human resources. So I see that. And then I think the other thing is, yeah, attracting um, our next generation, our successors to the profession. And what does that look like? And how do we do that? I, I, I think from my perspective right now in the upper Midwest, the equine industry is stronger than it's been in probably 15 years. And businesses are doing really well, but there's so many practices that are having a hard, hard time bringing professionals in and clearly understanding what those issues are, um, what the hurdles are to get over and, you know, make it more accessible to more veterinarians to, to spend their careers as equine veterinarians. Right. Thanks. How about yourself, Miranda? Yeah, I, I feel the same way as Wendy. I think we're all invested in the future of equine practice, right? So we are all thinking about what's equine practice going to look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And we're crazy busy now. And it seems like it's, you know, if we had known that all we needed was a pandemic to get kids and people back on horses, we would have figured that out a long time ago. But it's, it's been really, we're behind the eight ball. Like now we need to find a way 
And as practitioners, we need to decide that we have to make a change. We can no longer look at people who are coming out of veterinary school and blame them for the lack of them wanting to do our job. Like, I think we've got to decide that this is important and we've got to find ways to be creative and we've got to, we have to think outside the box in terms of the schedules that people have and collaboration and forming these networks for on-call and equine practice can't be a one-size-fits-all experience anymore. It just can't. I, I don't know if that's really much to answer your question about what business opportunities are. I mean, I think that we don't have a business if we can't have veterinarians. So I'm right. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you. Mm-hmm. I am all for working together and investing in opportunities, but if I don't have a vet, I've got nothing. So, so that's a perfect segue into my last question. And um, it's not one we had discussed before, but I just, I think it's the obvious question and the best way to end the session here is, so the alternative is I can always sell to a corporation, but Miranda, and you know, you had talked before is that you didn't want to go that route. So what options are there for practice owners to say, all right, I have, I guess I have, you know, it's a very binary option. I can sell to a corporation or I can keep private like I am, but who's going to buy me out? And am I leaving money on the table by selling to an associate? If I have an associate, because we're just talking about, you know, it's so hard to get new people on. And so to Wendy's situation where the senior partner probably didn't maximize the value he couldn't have had by selling to a corporate. But I I would say we're we're all, including myself, will be in that position in a few years where we're like, okay, um, I don't want to sell the corporate, but what other options are there? So Ben. I'll start with you. Thanks, Mike. Like the very first conversation we have bringing on associates, we talk about buying in. And I think that's the culture of the practice is to try to be transparent. And I think if you can do that early, you can identify successors. But you're right. If you're selling internally, at some point you're leaving money on the table because the multiple that's affordable and works selling to internally to associates is always going to be less than what corporates are offering. If you're going to keep practicing and working in the business as an owner, it doesn't make any sense to sell. I think the only time that it really makes sense to sell to corporate is when you're leaving. But like for us, the culture is to try to encourage and retain talent by selling shares. And we have those conversations early and transparent and share financials and talk about things with the associates so that when they do want to and are ready to buy in, they understand what they're getting into. How about yourself, Wendy? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, you've lived through it already. Yeah, certainly. Well, I think there's huge value um, in retaining those associates, those good productive associates and keeping them financially engaged in the practice. I guess the way I look at it is if you have um, associates that you can keep on a really productive trajectory Ultimately, your practice is going to be worth more than it might be, even if you're selling at a lower multiple than you might if you continue to be extremely profitable. So I think kind of do have to look at that flip side and not just um, the multiple that you're offered by corporate versus an internal sale. Um, And that certainly has been the case with us over the last couple of years. That's a great point. And I think that's an often overlooked point is the if you've got a few years, the potential. Yeah, absolutely. 
What about yourself, Scott? What do you think? I mean, uh, your group was able to sell the corporate, but there's some that want, some that don't. I mean, are there other options? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a lot of other options. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about the the valuation multiples here today, and you know, I go back to 2015, and you know, we were valuing our practices, mixed animal equine practices, that maybe a multiple of four times um, earnings. And, you know, we had hoped to maybe get to, you know, move the needle to maybe six times earnings. And um, this is recent, this is six years ago. I don't think anybody could have imagined that the multiples for these veterinary practices have reached the level that they've reached at this point in time. And I, I believe, you know, they're, they're, most of these multiples don't even make sense at this point in time. Um, when you look at the amount of cash that a veterinary practice is throwing off, it just doesn't support some of these exorbitant multiples that are being thrown around. So, you know, you look at what's the underlying cause of that and, you know, there, there's lots of different things that are causing that, but I don't think that these levels are sustainable for a long period of time. I think at some point in time, valuations are, are going to have to come back to more of a reasonable multiple of earnings. And But if you look across society right now in, in so many different areas of the economy, I think you can make that same argument. It's really hard to understand the value of Bitcoin, it's hard to understand the value of some of these real estate transactions and you can't relate to them. So I think there's, I think at some point in time, valuations are going to come back to a more normal, reasonable level. And it's going to, it's not going to make selling to corporate as attractive as it might be right now. So I think that's one big thing that's going to change at some point in time. I think that that was what motivated the Mavana shareholders that we had the opportunity to transact in an extraordinarily high multiple that none of us ever could have imagined. And if we wouldn't have had that opportunity, that transaction never would have occurred. So it was, um, it was that opportunity. Going back to, you know, what are the, what are the things to do? Um, I don't know. I always thought it was really important for there to be a platform to allow veterinarians to remain equity owners and practices. I think that there is, I, I think if we go back to 30 years ago when I graduated from veterinary school, I think almost everybody graduating from veterinary school envisioned that they would be a practice owner at some point in time. Um, I think in our successors, that has changed and they don't necessarily want to be practice owners. I think there's, there's a handful compared to maybe 30 years ago. Um, so that greatly affects, uh, affects the value of these, of these practices. If we don't have buyers for them, who's going to buy them? I think the expectations when you talk about people not wanting to be a practice owner, I think the expectations of practice ownership are different now than they were 30 years ago. I mean, if you think about the typical equine veterinarian that came out and was a practice owner, some of them couldn't even read their financials. And I feel like now there's this understanding that if you're a practice owner and you're, there's a management component that in a financial understanding that you have to be engaged in and responsible for. So I think that there are a lot of people that are seeing that now and they're like, yeah, that's really not my jam. So I think that's where we're seeing the difference. I agree. Yeah. I agree with that. Personally, I think there's still as many entrepreneurs coming out of veterinary school as there ever was. Yeah. But they're getting fed a lot of bad information while they're in school about how life works. Right. And so the one relevant to this conversation is you have so much school debt, you can never own a business, which is a fallacy. And I wish they would quit telling them that because your personal debt is a lifestyle choice and it has nothing to do with buying a business. And so we spend a lot of time trying to preach that 
to the veterinary students and do you know, yeah. outreach so that whether it's a small animal clinic or a large animal clinic, they don't miss out on the opportunity to get involved with the really good business. I mean, there's a reason that corporate's buying up yeah. all of the practices mm-hmm. because they're good investments. Totally agree. Miranda, the last word is yours then in terms of you know the question I've been asking everybody in terms of how are you, I mean, if you want to stay private, what's your succession plan then? I think that one of the things that happens in business and in practice, and maybe this is really Pollyanna of me, but I like to believe that if you can affect change and people see that that's occurring, they want to be a part of it. And I'm seeing that in our region. I think being involved in Cavalcade has been huge for our our three practices, because I feel like veterinarians are looking for opportunities to work with our practices, which I know that's not common for a lot of other practices um, who are, you know, have been looking for vets for years. But I think that it's on us to continue to make those changes. And I think that legacy is such an important thing for Millbrook Equine. I didn't start this practice. You know, I, I followed in the footsteps of great veterinarians and I intend to have other associate veterinarians then buy in and, and take that up when I'm ready to depart. Corporate is not an option for us. And I, I spend a lot of time driving around, you know, talking to myself, thinking like, is, is corporate really the best thing for, for equine practice? Like I, I understand why people make the decisions that they do. I get it. I mean, if, you, if it's a number that's crazy high, you're, you're going to go for it. It'd be stupid not to. But I also think that like when it comes to establishing a legacy, I'm not certain that that's the best choice for equine practice. So I, I really care about making good choices and spreading the gospel, if you will, and making changes to the profession. And because I think people want to be a part of that. Right. Those are inspiring last words. I'd like to thank all four of you for joining the panel. It would have been awesome if we could do it in person with each other. But uh, one of the things we've learned so well in the last 20 months is that Zoom works pretty well, too. So thank you all very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Great day. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. Beringer Ingelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our equine veterinary technical solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community in technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888 637 4251.